innovation is born out of necessity. So like this trimming down environment is going to force people to make decisions that are going to be tough and, and change hurts. Change isn't comfortable. Let's remember that, right? Like change, uh, the process of change involves like embracing discomfort, but changing a workflow and evolving it is, you know, how you survive. You know, I think we're well situated to like, to benefit from that. And I think that like anyone working in creative tech right now is, is like, is paddling in the ocean in a space where a tidal wave is coming um, and you'll be able to surf it. It'll, you know, lift all boats. Welcome to Ad Creative, a new show from Pencil about the unexpected ideas that have changed the game for DDC founders and operators with a focus on actionable takeaways. I'm Chase Mulseni. Thanks for joining us. This week, we get the opportunity to chat with Dan Pantello, founder and CEO of Marpipe. Him and I go really deep on creative testing and automation and things you should be thinking about as you try to scale your business through ads. He shares how his entrepreneurial journey started out during his college days, which led him to founding a growth agency as the tech scene in New York started to explode. Now that experience helped him in multiple ways. Most importantly, understanding the gap in the market for creative testing, which led him to founding Marpipe. Dan and I speak the same language, so you'll have to forgive us if it's a little inside baseball on creative testing. Hope you enjoy it. Really glad to be joined this episode of Ad Creative with Dan Pantelo. He is the founder and CEO of Marpipe, not our enemy. He's an amazing, amazing guy. He's been an entrepreneur, I think, since the jump coming out of school. I'm really excited to learn about that. And he was just last year named uh, Forbes 30 Under 30 for marketing and advertising. So pretty excited to be able to chat with him today. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Yeah, thanks for the amazing intro. Chase, uh, important note, we are not enemies. People think we are for some reason. People are like, you know, we've got to clear that up. Got to get that out of the way. This is, this is one of those ones. It's like the Shaq Kobe thing after the, uh, after the break of like 20 years later. It's like we weren't, you know, we just were pu pushing each other. And that's kind of how I look at it is like we yeah. push each other to innovate more and deliver more for customers. That's really what I see it as. Exactly. It's amazing. So I, I, I love the context of our relationship and people are surprised to hear that we're friends and that we're tight. So every time I say this, I'm like, yeah, I was talking to Dan yesterday and they're like, why, why? Like because exactly yeah we share like that's the whole point of this thing like we're we're in it together and by the way I send people to you I'm like well, you should use Marpipe they, for what you're looking for it's like perfect yeah I'm I'm really excited to have this chat with you so I want to go back you graduated in 2017 but you have been kind of at this thing for a while so I know you had the agency and so I wanted to before we kind of figure out how Marpipe started specifically. What's the history of you in marketing and advertising um, that kind of led to this place? It actually goes all the way back to high school. So in high school, uh, I was uh, part of the debate team. I was the captain of a debate team, and there was a lot of writing involved being a debater. And so I got really good at writing, and I started doing my friends' essays. I started writing my friends' essays for money. I had like a homework doing business, if you will. <laughs> Essentially... I did a bunch of my friends' college applications and stuff like that. And um, and then I went to college. And in college, I started doing the same thing. But uh, there were a lot more people in college. And it totally blew, like just blew up. I was running like... Um, I had way more people who wanted me to do their homework and write their essays than I could handle. Uh, so I pretty much like hired a team of essay writers 
which I, which I did by just like going to classes that are like really high level English classes and just rec- recruiting like kids who wanted to make some, some money um, and getting them in a group chat. And uh, I would get like homework assignments texted to me all the time. And then I would like, we were charging like 15 to 30 bucks a page. And then I was paying them. I was sending those projects into the group chat and I was paying them, you know, anywhere between five to 10 bucks a page and just keeping the margin there. And uh, they were happy to do that. And it got, it got pretty big. <laughs> and uh, and it, grew, it kept growing to the point where I started to get developed like, you know, by year two, by like my kind of junior year, I started to develop this suspicion that the administration was catching on to me. There were a few telltale signs that were like, oh man, I might get caught for this. Uh, it's getting too big. And so, you know, of course I'd get kicked out of school if I was caught. So, so I had to like go legit and uh, turn my hustle into something that I couldn't get kicked out of school for. And uh, the natural pivot that I came up with for that business was SEO, right? Because search engine optimization is just, is keyword optimized content creation. So I taught myself how to do SEO through like YouTube and Google University and, uh, and learned that over the course of a few weekends I taught my essay writing team how to write keyword optimized content. And uh, like, you know, just like went into some empty classrooms around campus and like just did lessons for these people. And and then um, we then essentially went around, I went around to like downtown and, and we're like knocked on doors and was like, hey, if someone Googles Chinese food in this area, like, don't you want to be like, the number one search result. And everyone was just like, yeah. And everyone thought this was like some crazy hacker coding magic that we were like hacking Google or something. It was kind of still where like SEO was not yet a household term that everyone knew. So there was like a large kind of, I guess, value arbitrage for that service. So we started doing SEO for a bunch of local businesses, small customers, super, super small, like local businesses. And from there, these businesses were just like, oh, by the way, you guys are doing our SEO. Can you also do like, run this sale that we want to do for for this thing? Or can you update our website? Can you run our um, Instagram page? Right. And we didn't know how to do any of that stuff, but just kind of said yes to everything and figured out how to do it along the way with these small stakes, local businesses. And before you know it, kind of had like a little full service agency digital shop by, by the time that I graduated college. So, you know, one of the first things I did was grab a desk at a WeWork uh, after I graduated college in Soho, and we set up a creative and performance marketing agency. And we had this kind of experience where we cut our teeth with like little small local businesses, and we wanted to work with significantly bigger venture backed businesses. And that's kind of, and that's that's who we met. You know, I, I kind of was on the ground in, in, in New York and Soho and kind of making making my rounds around like startup incubators and you know, Area 51 was this startup incubator that WeWork started, which was like really cool. This was when WeWork was really cool still. So we somehow got our way, like I got my, made my way in there. And there I met a bunch of like venture backed entrepreneurs who had raised a bunch of money and needed to grow quickly. And they needed a digital guy. And I was at the right place at the right time. And I was like, hey, all right, like, let's do this. And that's kind of how I started uh, an agency that worked with a lot of these venture backed DTC brands in New York. And uh, that's that's the story of how the agency started. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. It's so it's so funny. Um, first of all, you were saying that, and so I have a filmmaking background. You were saying that I'm like, dude, that first portion of the story in college is like a movie, right? It's like literally, are they going to catch on? 
or what's going to happen to me? Oh, I got to go legit. Um, so I, 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 I love that. If we had pulled out the, uh, we had pulled out the, the curriculum and, and using, uh, and creating a homework for people, I think we could have input anything and it would have been like, whoa, Dan's a king, Dan's a homework kingpin, you know, this, uh, <laughs> uh amazing. When you move to the agency, so obviously now we're going to be able to dovetail into into the creation of Marpipe. Like, what trends were you seeing that really made you feel like, okay, there's something that's not happening here? I know what you're going to say, pretty much, but I'm curious, like in your own words, what that looks like, and what like specific things you kept seeing over and over again that gave you the confidence that this was the right thing to do. Yeah, so we were running this. We were offering like kind of a full serve, like full service like just agency services, right? So like we were doing a little bit of everything, but then we very quickly actually, after the first year or so in New York, narrowed in on just creative production and um, and media buying, right? So like we would just make creative and, and run it. And we were running on a performance model, meaning we were only paid uh, well if our customers, you know, at, if the campaigns we ran performed well, and if they didn't, we were not paid well. And that's kind of where we thrive. That was like our sweet spot. We really enjoyed being like performance-based as an agency. It definitely differentiated us from a lot of the crowd back in that day. We were always looking for tips, tricks, and hacks of like how to hack performance. Everything we did was in the name of performance, right? And, um, you know, we figured out that like out of the, the most influential variable to advertising success that we have seen in that day... Irre- like irrefutably, it was not audience targeting. It was not reach. It was not the brand. It was the actual creative. Uh, what I mean by that is like the actual visual variables in the creative itself, right? Like the colors, the words, the pictures, everything. If you were to replace even the smallest visual variable, it would always have a large impact on performance. And so when we kind of, when we figured that out, like one of the things that people, one of the like big discoveries I think we had, which is still, I think, shocks people to this day, is the volume of the creative change has little to do with the magnitude that that change has on performance, right? So people usually just assume big creative change equals big performance difference. Not the case, actually. Not the case, right? So like small creative change can have much bigger performance difference than big creative change. Why that's the case? I don't know. We still have yet to figure that. Like, I really can't, ex- like, I can explain why that works. Um, but just run the experiment yourself in any ad account and you'll see uh, what I'm talking about, right? So even the smallest kind of like Where's Waldo-esque difference always will have a large impact on performance. And so creative is like this, like so important to the success of businesses, right? Like a lot of the businesses we're working for rely on their paid media performance, like especially in DTC, for their businesses to thrive and grow. That's the main channel. So you, you know, you kind of live and die by your by your your paid social performance. A lot of these businesses. Okay, well, if creative is the largest thing influencing that, what does your creative process look like? Like, how do you make creative decisions? You should be able to justify that the same way you make financial decisions, right? Because this is so important. And if you kind of ask any marketer or creative, like, how do you make visual decisions when it comes to your creative, right? Because these are so important to your business outcomes. Well, you're not going to get good answers from people. Like, you're not going to get well thought out answers there, right? Like, the answer is somewhere in between, like, vibes and, like, we're doing what other people are doing because we're assuming that works. 
So it's like a lot of arbitrary taste making when it comes to the creative process. And like, we were just really confused that like, this was just like, I was a young, naive kid new on the kind of New York City like marketing ecosystem. And I was like, I really can't understand this. Like, how are people just accepting this as the state of creative today? Like this is this makes no sense today. No one could explain it to me. Like how we're just all okay with the creative process just being this just like guessing game, right? That's like that that no one really knows too much about. Right. This the creative process is like the biggest question mark. Everything else in the marketing process from the, the bidding to the audience targeting to the placement, all of that is automated and, and like functions on like data science and is like optimized to peak performance. Creative is like totally untouched by data science and automation, right? Like as a, as a workflow today. So, you know, th- this is like the first kind of thing. Like this was like this discovery we made of like, wow, massive pain point, massive market. If we can solve it, like huge impact on the world and the industry, Let's investigate that problem and drill drill down deeper here because like it can't just be that like creative is where data and automation stops uh, kind of uh, proliferating across uh, the marketing industry. So first, uh, if people are listening to this, I was just nodding my head because he's just <laughs> speaking truth to power with me on all of those things resonates um, in I think a completely different way considering we're we're solving kind of two ends of the same same issue. So I have like two two big ones that come from that. The the first one is what we like to say is creative is a moat for your business. And the reason it's defensible for you is because no one can be you if you really invest in it properly. So you have your brand and then you go and test variants. Whatever if those variables are a couple of new videos that you're going to put in or like you said you're you're changing a few variants in in the ad creative that you're putting out there. Essentially you own your brand and the way that you're communicating with the world and no one can no one can recreate that. They can go and homogenize it afterwards, but essentially you're first to market if you do it right. So it's a moat. Second, essentially, like you said, all targeting is going to be automated. And so creative also is essentially targeting, right? If you're trying to find new adjacent users or parallel users to your core user that was going to find your product anyway, creative is the real way that you're going to be able to pull them in. So I think that's like table stakes have to do it. What I want to know is in your experience now, have you seen people evolve their creative strategies since then? Or is it still very much like your you and your team are having to handhold them through like tests like this? Because I think there's the cream of the crop in terms of the media buyers, and they have a like a very, very detailed strategy with which they go with, which by the way, everyone has their own way of doing things. And then everyone else feels like they're just still trying to figure it out and they don't actually have like methodology yeah. behind how what they're doing, what they're doing. So what what's been your guys' experience with that? So like, I mean, creative is hard. We can all acknowledge that, right? Like that's, it's a, it's a really big challenge for brands to get right. It's a, it's a very complex problem to think about. And, uh, and so people don't want to think about hard problems, um, until they're forced to, until they have to, right. It's kind of like this kind of procrastination effect. And I, I think that like there was this, you know, iOS 14, ATT, GDPR, these, this kind of regulatory push that came about over the last few years where it was like, okay, this is really happening. You know, you're going to need to come up with some answers to how you're going to adjust and react in this new world, force people's hands to start thinking about this process and start thinking, like really auditing their workflow. Uh, I think that pre iOS 14, it felt like when we were talking to people about their creative workflow, it felt like we were selling vitamins. Like some people like vitamins, but you really got to convince them that like it's good for you and like the long term benefits will pay off. 
Um, but after iOS 14, yeah, I mean, we were selling painkillers, right? Like people were coming in being like, I have an active pain point. I need to figure out what I'm like. Creative is king now. Help me think through this challenge. What am I going to do? Like, how do you guys help me solve my creative workflow? And so like a lot of people didn't do it for the good of the crew. Like a lot of the people who are now really auditing their creative workflow, a lot of the performance marketers who are thinking more about creative than they ever have before uh, are doing it because of the changing environment, right? And like this kind of leap in, I guess, regulatory guidance from Apple and, and like the EU, the European Union set the... Set, set the wheels in motion for like trick, like accelerating this change, which I think was inevitable, but wouldn't happen as fast as it's happening today uh, without those, those, those factors being there, you know, like better creative is in many ways an answer to iOS 14, right? Cause in a world where you can't launch shitty creative and let the audience out go do all of the work for you to find the few people who are going to react well to it. You know, you, you're only targeting broad audiences today. And so like, you know, you have to have broadly appealing creative. Well, how are you going to do that, right? Well, there are tools like Pencil and Marpipe and, and a bunch of other like of our peers in this space that are emerging tech partners that help people tackle this problem. So like right now, I think what you're seeing to answer your question, like more definitively, right? Like at this current moment, what you're seeing is like this fusion between creative teams and performance marketing teams. They used to be separate teams, sit on separate floors, have separate Slack channels, all of that. Now the best creatives are the ones who look at marketing data. Creatives never used to look at marketing data before. That's a big new change. The best uh, performance marketers are the ones who understand the design and creative process, right? That never used to be the case. They only used to sit in analytics platforms. The best new MarTech platforms are the ones where performance marketers and creatives can both sit in at the same time and bring and come together. They There should be new tools to, to, to like facilitate this new world and environment where those two teams are being blended together and being one of the same. So yeah. Uh, does that rant answer your question? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think that you you said something that's just like a killer way to like put a button on the entire thing, which is better creative is an answer to iOS 14. And what that essentially is telling you is iOS 14 really fucked with performance marketers workflows and creative teams workflows because essentially they both had to be better at their job and so now you're forcing them to to come together and what you said is like the martech solutions of the future bring together those two teams and like i always say to people i'm sure you do i said look pencil is a bridge between the performance team and the creative team Mm -hmm. and the bridge used to be huge now there's a shared language and it's very close maybe you guys are thinking a little bit about this and a little about this but like we're all here. It's not like this great big river or ocean divides us anymore. And we have to kind of work together. So yeah, that definitely, I'm seeing that, like you said, the the upward uh, bound is, is a lot different than it used to be with those people. And essentially what we're seeing is now everyone calling themselves a performance creative yeah, or stuff like that. And I, I think that one will be a funny one where like, you know, everyone's a UGC creator now. So eventually everyone's going to be a performance creative, but the people who have started this out are am- incredible like at what they do. How would you define performance creative? This is so funny. Our podcast that's coming out this week, we deal with this quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And essentially, I I think it's a great question. And it's a bit nebulous. We haven't really defined it because I think we're still in the early stages of what that means. But I think it's a person who uh, essentially does what you said, which is synthesize data and creative, creative processes together. And it's not 
over indexing on one or the other. Like mm-hmm. if you're a creative person and you're 90% creative, 10% data, you're not a performance creative. If you're a performance person and you're 90% performance and 10% creative, you're not a performance creative, but somewhere in the middle, like there's a, obviously distribution, right? People are going to index more heavily on what they feel comfortable with, but you've got to, the distribution has to be somewhere with like 60, 40 range yeah. in between both. And I have, there's a few that are like just killing the game on this, but I, I would throw that back to you. What do, what do you define it as right now? Okay. I just have one question to thread the loop on this for you. I'm curious. What's your position yeah. on, you know, if you had to pick one, don't equivocate on this one, right? If you had to pick one, yeah, is creative an art or a science? It's a science. Yeah. We, I mean, we have, we definitely have the same position. Right. And I think that's a controversial one to people, right? Like I think that, you know, so for us, right. Like, you can group the people who see MarPipe and see what we're building and working on and like our proposed workflow for how we think creative should, should work better. You know, there's really kind of like two types of reactions to it. You can always bet that like people will either be in bucket A or bucket B as far as how they react to it. I'm sure you guys see something very similar, right? Like bucket A is like creatives who are like, they're like your data science and automation has no place in my creative process. I am creative Picasso. I have been doing this for 30 years. That is not how this shit works. Like get out of here, kids. Right. Like let leave it, leave it to the veterans to continue, like, you know, to understand how this works. Right. And then, and then group number two is like, we're willing to do anything in the name of like performance and having like an edge over our competition. So like, we will try it. And, uh, and, and ultimately it's like those who become the like early adopters of new tech who like, I mean, if it works and if the risks that they take, you know, work out for them from a performance perspective, you know, it's only a matter of time before group number one either has to like adapt or die. And so like, we don't even talk to group number one, people who are like, you know, that creative is not a science, right? I don't like to look at the data and like, let the audience tell me what to do. I tell the audience what they like, you know, we just don't talk. We're like, we just kind of skip. We're like, okay, cool. That's your position. It's your current position today. It probably won't be for long. We'll move on to the next conversation. You know, we don't need to convince you to like, to be innovative. Yeah. First of all, I probably should have just taken the opposing view just for, just for the sake of the, the, (laughs) (laughs) that would be fun. Uh, That would, that would have been great. I mean, the big realization you have is essentially every single like bell curve of innovation that you see is true at every stage, right? There are the early adopters who get in and are willing to go through bugs and bullshit with you because they believe that this is the future. Then there's the kind of the next stage who wanted to do it, but were a little afraid and had to kind of, you know, hedge a little bit, but your, your technology has gotten better. So they're going to get in and there's the rest of, there's the rest of the people. And I think both of us are at is like, we have those early innovators who have been our, like our champions since we launched out of beta. And now we're in the second tier and the market essentially where we were having headwinds. And I'm not talking about, you were right. iOS 14 is actually a tailwind for us, but psychologically there was a lot of headwinds in terms of people being like, what do I do? I don't know. And, and everyone was just afraid, right? So we could help those people who are open. But I think now everyone is realizing, like you said, the only thing we can do is have better creative. Yeah. There's nothing else to be done. And so we absolutely need to do it. And I think within the next year, group A is going to come back with their tail between their legs and say like, yeah, we, know we need to do it. But it's still it's still about a year. I mean, I'm sure you get messages all the time. I get messages all the time like, this is insane. This is what we need to be doing. You guys, like you and Laura Pipe, you guys, you guys are doing exactly what the market needs. 
Um, you're like, okay, these are the people that are starting to understand what's coming. Yeah. But they're in group two. Group three and four are still have to essentially get a bunch of case studies out there, see some of you know Jess's posts and be like, oh, I'm doing this wrong. Shout out to Jess Cook. Yeah, shout out to Jess Cook. Uh, go to content. So yeah, yeah and everyone so, should follow her on Twitter. She just started. So do it. Go, what was that? I said everyone should follow her on Twitter. She just started. Um, she's amazing. Yeah. Um, we'll link her out as well. So yeah, I think we absolutely are in that phase two where people are starting to get it and and it's it's gonna move a lot more quickly than it did the previous two years for either of us. Yeah. Would you guys consider like would you guys consider pencil in the category of creative automation? We do, we do, because essentially we're trying to uh, automate the entire production process of ads, right? So a customer comes to us with assets and they leave with fully finished ads, you know, different lengths, different, like they have videos and statics. Um, and yeah, they can change a few things, but essentially we automate that entire process that an editor would do. So yeah. absolutely, we look at it as an automation there. We want to add things to it in the front end and the back end to make it even more so. But um, yeah, we do. How about you guys? Same, right? Um, there's there's an element that there, we're definitely automate. Like, so what we're automating away is the work of testing, right? So like building, launching, running, and analyzing creative tests should be automated, not just because it creates efficiency, but because human error always screws it up. Like machines are way better at doing the actual testing job than than our humans. But you do need a, a, a human to operate. The analogy that we make is it's like, it's like introducing a forklift into a warehouse, right? Whereas like before you had everyone like lifting boxes by hand. Now you don't need five people lifting boxes by hand and breaking their backs. You just need one person to be trained up on how to operate the new machinery in order to do the work of five people. Um, so like you need one person to just learn a new system. Um, and that way, you know, you can, you, you can do something much more efficiently. My question though is like, and I think this is an interesting topic to explore in just the area of automation in general. In a market downturn environment, right, where people are looking to run teams more efficiently, do you think that's a positive tailwind for people who are in the automation of work business? One, I'm laughing because it's, I've been talking about this a lot. 100%, it is where iOS was this headwind for us. It's like uh, this. Sorry, America world. Uh, I can't change the fact that inflation is uh, massive. It's an absolute tailwind for us because yeah. everyone is saying like, I don't want to take on employment taxes and the cultural needs of a, of a employee. Sorry, it's hard. And so let me just outsource this or get a platform that essentially takes the work of, like you said, five, turns it into the work of one. And first of all, I'm stealing that. Uh, second, what we a lot of times tell people is like, look, you can spend time putting oil like to make your painting or you can have the painting and like have the studio like the old artist did and the studio would do all the work and then the artist comes in and does all the sprucing that makes it a masterpiece. So like we'll do all the work. You just come in and move something like, oh, that, that word needs to be changed and go on your merry way. And essentially you've saved hours, if not days of your process and it's all data driven. Yeah. It's just much better. So to answer your initial question, yes, tailwind. But what do you say? No, I, I agree. I just found that it's like a pretty controversial take. Um, it seems to be like a polarizing one. Um, and I think that's probably a good thing for us. We should lean in and be the polarizing guys and be like, yeah, aut like automate the busy work. 
Yeah. You should do that. Take this as an opportunity. Like this is your opportunity to like trim the fat, lean it. Like let's lean into that. So this is a, first of all, we should, obviously I think we've seen, you know, controversial takes get people followers uh, on Twitter. Uh, this should be our version of attrib- the attribution wars, right? Uh, <laughs> I love it. We need it. You know, we need to find someone now on marketing Twitter who has the opposite take and orchestrate like a large public feud. Hundred percent. You and I on one side, and then we and, and we'll get will will on that, and then we have to find someone who's just going to be the counterpoint, and we'll all just be kind of in this little cabal of engagement cabal. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think it's, I think it's real though. If you, what you said about, we have to get better at creative, we have to get better at everything. And so uh, market downturns force you to get better. Like that's absolutely it. Think about all the innovation that came out of the last recession. Mm -hmm. Like all the companies that we look at as the titans of industry. I mean, Google wasn't Google until really the last downturn. And then it was like, oh shit, they've really changed the game and allowed people to do things they couldn't do beforehand. Same thing, Facebook, same thing, you know, all these other companies, Uber, all these companies came out of that came out of that time, um, and so I think we're going to see quite a bit of innovation come out. It just what's the qui benefit? Uh, who benefits? We do. So we need to definitely lean in. Innovation is born out of necessity. So like this trimming down environment is going to force people to make decisions that are going to be tough and and change hurts. Change is uncomfortable. Let's remember that, right? Like change uh, the process of change involves like embracing discomfort but changing a workflow and evolving it is you know how you survive you know i think we're well situated to like to benefit from that and i think that like anyone working in creative tech right now is is like is paddling in the ocean in a space where a tidal wave is coming um and you'll be able to surf it uh it'll it'll you know lift all boats yeah, reza at uh, at motion said something to me a few weeks back and i thought it was really really powerful he said, you know, I was around at the first stage when he was doing shoelace at the first stage of all of the Shopify and, and e-commerce products that essentially changed the game. So the Clavios and the Gorgeous and all of these ones that essentially allowed you to build a fully functioning D2C store that could deliver value to customers. And he said that the next phase he feels like, and obviously he's in the game with us at Motion doing, doing um, Creative Insights is creative because... All those things before, now you have all that. That's just standard stack, right? Like this is table stakes. The next level of incremental value you can give yourself as a company is taking your creative to the next game, whether that's testing, brand, whatever, whoever's in that space. Like there's an app called uh, Kehani that uh, Jesse Puji has that's about like testing stories for landing pages. Like this is another thing that's going to change change the game and the way people consume things, especially as, as we get more and more TikTokified. Yeah. And so anyone who's in this space, I think has, there's a, a much higher ceiling than some of the other tools that people are creating for, you know, making a really meaningful company that delivers huge value to like a, a large swath of people. So yeah, I think people who are here should definitely keep leaning in. We should all keep pushing each other. The customer benefits. Do you, like, I think the major um, edge that DTC brands will have over this downturn period is, is, and of course, like it sounds so biased to hear it coming from someone like me, but like a big advantage, a big edge that separates DTC brand winners against their competitors is like the tech stack and their workflow, right? Like, are you operating more efficiently and do you have access to information, data, performance tools that your, your direct competition doesn't have access to? 
that's what makes the difference, the incremental difference that like makes your competitor run out of money and allows you to stay afloat. Yeah, it's um, I think it's another thing that's been happening, right? And so like it's now become kind of posh to talk about how people have been mismanaging their businesses. And it's like this was just the way things went. We can, you know, wax poetic about you should have always been trying to run a profitable business. But like you just kind of, you know, the market tells you you need to run a business this way. It's how everyone is doing it. Most people who come up in those times, it's just like, I'll use a basketball analogy. Russell Westbrook was a basketball player before the three-pointer became important. All of a sudden, the game changed. He couldn't change his game. Like, And it's not his fault. He's not a good three-point shooter. But the game kind of passed him by. And so mm -hmm. it's like every era has kind of a new thing that you need to become good at. And so like you said, essentially, now if we're moving into this place where everyone is going to be you know, working towards profit, what are the incremental things that you can layer into your process that will allow you to have a, you know, have a, have an up, upward hand on, um, on your competition. And it really is how do you have a handle on your data and do you have a handle on how to leverage that data and synthesize that with who your audience is and do that at scale repeatedly. And so I always talk about like value extraction is can someone do something repeatedly and scale it? And so that's kind of, I think the big difference is like you said, it's process and being able to scale that process into something that week over week, month over month drives incremental value for the business and obviously the customers, right? They're, they're all really excited about what you're putting out there, but it's because you keep testing new variations of things so that they find new ways to interact with your product and you know they, they purchase and they're doing it in a profitable way, like upfront versus the brands of 2016, 2017 were carrying essentially you know, the debt of that customer for, you know, three, six months, 12 months, uh, 18 months, you know, you only have to carry it for three months because you have a better process in place. Yeah. I mean, like to close, I guess the, to put a, to put a bow on this, right? Like what it means, I think for any marketers or CEOs or founders that are listening to this right now is like audit your creative process and your creative workflow. We find that like in our discovery process, when people come in and ask for a demo from Warpipe, and we ask them, like, what does your creative testing workflow look like today? Do you remember what you learned from the creative test that you ran six months ago? Where are you storing this information? Everyone is just, like, grasping at straws. And um, a lot of people either have, like, no or weak processes there. And so, like, ask that question in your team, right? Like, this is an important question to confront, right? Like, if, we ask, if someone asked you that question today, like, how would your team respond? You know, like, what does your creative testing workflow look like today? Can you explain that? Do you guys have a process somewhere today? You know, how do you produce? Um, what information do you use? What data do you use? Does this look like, does this process look like a process that is con insanely consequential to your business the same way you would make financial projections or like, you know, any, or make hiring decisions and stuff like that, right? Like, it should be held to that standard. And so like, you know, do the exploration before you like you have to or or you get screwed by by the lack of of attention to it so we're both in marketing and but we obviously b2b we're working you know you're dealing with a lot of like a lot of the business side of things as well how often do you find or your team find that everyone is a marketer but a marketer can't be everything so if a marketer comes in and is like hey look we're not doing this right in the financial way finance seems like yo chill the fuck out <laughs> but finance seems like dude those ads are terrible like actually they're not they're doing really well. And it's, it's a really weird dichotomy between kind of everyone, everyone's a marketer, but marketers can't kind of 
comment on anything else? Have you guys seen that be the case when brands come and talk to you? Yeah, like, like everyone wants to weigh in on marketing and has an opinion and has something to say. But then marketers can't tell like the finance guy how to do his job. Yeah, of course, totally. And especially when it comes to like creative, everyone has an opinion. Like the founder's wife has an opinion on the creative. And this is what like makes the process so like arbitrary. Like decision by committee is terrible. Decision by, there are no statues of committees, right? Like (laughs) their decision by committee is a bad idea. Like you end up getting this like Frankenstein of a compromise between what every individual person feels like they want and uh, everyone is slightly disgruntled and no one is happy and not much progress is made. And uh, typically, like a lot of the old school creative workflows are, are decisions by committee. And uh, I think, you know, it should either be, it should either be like driven by a single person or a data-driven process. Like the, you know, the customer should tell you, tell you what they want. Yeah, I think like having people weigh in on creative, it's the bane of creative's existence, right? Like they're used to it and this is like the worst part of their job, right? Like, like a creative shouldn't have to like, entertain the arbitrary opinions of the accounting the person in accounting or or the the founder's wife so yeah like that's why processes are better there that's why it's like no uh regardless of what your take is uh we actually have data confirming that this is what our audience most wants to see so unless you want us to subvert our audience's preference and tank our own performance to actualize your preference then we're gonna keep going with this like you can't can't say no to that, but you can argue against vibes. You know, you could be like, I don't agree with your opinion, but you can't argue against data. Yeah. I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. I think um, what we've recognized is when you allow human, when you allow subjectivity into an objective process, it becomes very difficult because like you said, you're, you're essentially arguing against vibes versus this is the data Everything is predicated on your customers, and that's literally the only committee that matters, the only approval that it matters from a committee. And essentially what we've found is a lot of times those people, when they those teams come together, it's because they haven't had the conversation. You know, it's like all good relationships or great relationships are predicated on communication. Like those teams haven't communicated yet, and they're already at odds. And like we're essentially the middleman of those of those challenges that they're having. And I think this kind of comes back to the teams of the future that do creative and performance well will have had those communications beforehand so that they have a like an, a realized vision, um, a unified realized vision that they're going to be able to then action on through platforms like Marpipe or or Pencil. So it's yeah, it's really important for the future of creative and being able to scale your businesses to have that unified vision. I think it's it's very rare. And the the ones that you see are the ones that like essentially everyone talks about on Twitter. It's like there's like five brands that essentially get all the love. And it's because they have a unified vision about what they're trying to accomplish and they're able to action on it regularly. And you feel very comfortable. I mean, a great brand that does those things and is able to scale, there's a certain comfort level you feel when you see it, right? And when people talk about it, because it feels like, okay, there is a North Star that they're running at and they are not breaking away. And it is predicated on, we know who we're trying to target and we trust that the data is going to help those customers get what they need. And in between those two things is like the creative that they're finding to be able to do that. So we have to do it. Yeah. I find that like a good qualifying question to ask a creative to determine whether like there's a pretty good litmus test for whether someone is going to be going to be effective at like using a data driven process or not. And it comes down to this. Like I love asking this question. 
and I recommend you ask it to any creative that like you work with, right? So like, let's assume there's like two ads, one, which is like perfectly on brand in like great and you love it and you made it and it's your work. The other one, the number B actually breaks brand guidelines and um, looks really ugly. But when it comes to the performance of these ads, ad B, the number two, the ugly one that breaks brand guidelines performs um, like 50% better than, you know, than the first one. What do you do? Do you keep, right? Like typically a data-driven person would say like, well, then the brand guidelines are not optimized for performance. Let's iterate on the brand guidelines to be inclusive of this thing. That is a new learning that we got from our audience, right? The safe old school workflow person would just be like, oh, non-compliant, cut it. Don't, no way. Like for, sacrifice performance for, for brand compliance, right? The whole point of brand guidelines to begin with is for performance, right? People forget about that. Well, have you heard about this theory about companies, right? Where there's, there's sentinels and then there's stars. And so the stars want to take things to the moon and essentially like keep scaling and they don't give a shit how they do it. But then as a company grows, you start putting sentinels in places that are supposed to protect things. And so people who are protecting the brand, people who are protecting the legal, people who are t- protecting the finances. And they actually come into huge conflict with those early stars who are there to grow the business meaningfully. And so what happens is the sentinel mind frame is really pervasive because as you grow, it becomes not about let's grow this thing. It's like protect what we have. And so you find that those performance, because performance people in general are always going to be trying to, like you said, go and take to the next level. But a brand person is there as kind of a steward of the brand, especially if they're later to the game, whereas they, they didn't build anything. They're just there to essentially take it to the next level. And so what I have found is they almost come in completely closed off to any changes. And it's predicated on that their job is... The foundation of their job is just to protect the brand, not grow the brand meaningfully. And so, again, the idea comes down to communication. Is it about protecting the brand or what is our mission as a company? Mm -hmm. And every company's mission is to grow. And so if the mission of a company to exist is to grow, then we need to at every stage be recalibrating these things continuously to say, hey, look, this is what the brand standards were. Our audience has evolved and grown. And so the way that we communicate to him has to evolve and grow. We can't just be stuck in 2013 and communicating that way. If, like you said, variant B crushes, it continues to crush, and every variation of it is a rock star, why would we not say, you know what, maybe we need to loosen and or just evolve how we communicate the brand messaging to the customers because the audience grew up too. Right, exactly. That's exactly right. And uh, I would say that like, and I don't, in, with creative data right now, and I don't know if you guys see this too, but my observation is that it's more of a fit for specific people in the industry than companies in the industry. Meaning like, will someone will buy Marpipe at company one, right? Love it, implement it. Then they'll leave to company two. Some new dude comes in to company one and is like, oh, I'm not down with creative data. This is like, I don't like this workflow. But then that person will take that, like, will take us to company two and wherever they go after that. Right. And so, like, we more sell to like people and personalities that are innovative and two stars rather than like two specific businesses, I guess. 100%. We have trailed so many people to so many different companies. 
they i'm sure you're you have like word of mouth and like referral is huge in this business we're like dude this thing yeah. is sick and they're in like a say like foxwell founder group or something they tell their buddies in there about it absolutely i think it's predicated like again we're talking about the bell curve of innovation with this thing and and the early adopters versus the late the late stage adopters and we're still like we said in phase two of this thing it's still early phase two so i still think companies the only thing we ever get is we get like innovation projects from big companies. And so you guys get the same thing with like, hey, we want to try this thing to, you know, digitally innovate. You're like, dude, it's 2022. Digital innovation was like 10 years ago. I don't know what we're talking about, but let's chat about it. But usually those companies are not the best, the best customers. Yeah, no. And the ones that have those champions that want to attack, they're in just attack mode or the stars as we're as we're coining them right now. But yeah, they take you company to company with them because they're like, I can't live without this thing because it, it essentially changes the game for, for my creative workflow. You know that like whenever you work with someone who's like part of an innovation team at a company, it's not going to be a good result because the whole reason that company needs a fucking innovation team is because nobody wants to innovate. Right. So like they have to try to force that function. So you already know you're going to be trying to force feed something to people. And like, that's just like not a good context. Right. Like, by the way, God bless those people doing like part of those innovation teams, like really, really trying to move mountains out there. It's not an easy job. Oh, yeah. They're doing God's work. The innovation teams at P&G, Coco, like you guys are doing God's work. Seriously. It's important stuff. I mean, eventually everyone will catch up. Right. So it's like uh, I've been talking a lot about how all old things become new. It's just what side of the aisle you're on of what's old and new. So for instance, D2C companies are now doing mailers and and radio and connected TV. And they're like, oh my God, the results are amazing. <laughs> it's just, and then the, the the all the old school Main Street companies are doing D2C. And they're like, wow, there's so many customers out there that want our products. Like, it's just channel, okay? We're all essentially, everyone's going to become an omni-channel business and like, how well positioned are you? And so this is kind of the next stage of it, which is, I feel hopefully, you know, people have cash stores to be able to go and compete in those old channels or the, you know, the more standard channels. But the, the DDC companies or the, excuse me, the Main Street companies have just cash stores to be able to throw at making DDC a really meaningful channel for them. And so, again, this is like another theoretical thing, but essentially like niche audiences plus how you synthesize creative with those niche audiences is really how DDC companies are going to stand out over the next few years as they have to start building meaningful businesses, not on, it is still broad audience, but essentially like niche messaging to be able to kind of cut through and find your foothold or your beachhead where you, where you start. Cause it's not the old days where all birds was able to grow on just like, Hey, we're going to go broad and whoever buys it and has enough money lying around to purchase. This is going to be the thing, which is why creative is so important going forward. Right. And this is, this problem is further compounded by the fact that Venture capital is going to be leaving a lot of the industry. Um, there's going to be much less VC money flowing into the coffers of these companies. They'll be getting worse terms. Like you know, it, it's you're not going to see the same sort of valuations and multiples in direct to consumer brands as you have historically in this kind of whole run up to this thing. So, so yeah, like you know, our customers are in a tough spot, right? Like the people chase that me and you sell to a lot of these DTC brands. They're in a tough spot, and it's gonna be it's gonna be tough. They're gonna need to make a lot of changes, and uh, we need to create the kind of content that will help, uh, that can help guide. You know, there's a lot of other people in the industry who are doing that kind of thing right now. Like the other day, I was just listening to uh, uh, Dara Denny and uh, Savannah Sanchez's podcast um, on on performance creative, 
pretty, you know, those shout out to Dara, by the way, I was at dinner with her last night. She says hi to you. I told her that we'd be talking. Uh, so shout out to her. Yeah. <laughs> I almost think we need to do like a round table with all of us where we just, uh, go hard at this because I was saying like, there are people who are doing performance, creative, amazing. Like she is the best. Her and Barry are the best in the game who at this in my opinion. They're amazing. Um, and so, yeah, shout out to Dara. She's incredible. Savannah's incredible. They're changing the game on all of this. So everyone should go listen to that podcast and we'll link it out as well in this because people should go learn from them. Absolutely, man. Yeah, let's do it. The round table sounds amazing. Yeah, that would be like, that would be great. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely do it. Yeah, just data-driven tips, tricks, hacks, real tactical stuff. Like, let's put up some some ROAS. <laughs> yeah, let's, that's going to be the name of the, that's going to be the name of the session. Let's put up ROAS. S Z. Uh, <laughs> um, so Dan, I know we're, we're close to the end of our time. I usually, I, I do the thing called uh, anti rapid fire because I'm a long winded person. Um, so I don't know how to do ask like short ended questions. Like what's your favorite food? Pasta. That's not, I don't do that. So I'm always really fascinated because you've been, you've been running companies since you were a kid, literally what's been hard specifically with Marpipe that you didn't expect. The hardest part of, of a business is like, um, I would say like people in culture building, right. Is, is the most, I think, um, challenging piece, you know, a business isn't just like numbers on a spreadsheet as much as you kind of plan it out that way. It has so much to do with people and having the right people at the right stage. And sometimes you outgrow people and have to replace them, even though they didn't do anything wrong or weren't underperforming. And so like, there are a lot of disappointing conversations you have to have sometimes they're really tough conversations it is having kind of going navigating navigating that and really just always recruiting the people the right people that you need at the right stage while making sure that the people from the previous stage don't stay involved in the business longer than they should be essentially for it to be like a fit for both is the most difficult, like unanticipated and difficult part, right? Um, and like creating a cult, like maintaining a culture of high pace and high performance requires constant, like applying of gas to the pedal. And, uh, and it, you know, it's like, it's an always kind of on, on effort. You can't just like do it once, right? Like it is a constant ongoing, always on process that gets more and more intense. That's the thing that I think is, is the most, um, most difficult about, about building businesses. It's funny. It's like to grow something, you need to put pressure on it to be able to grow because if you don't, it won't like it, you need to continuously push it or it won't expand to protect itself. But simultaneously, you're putting pressure on yourself to put pressure on a thing. And it's like, and then everyone is pushing against you and you don't grow if it's not painful. Right. So I think it's uh, yeah, it's a really, really good call out there. What keeps you going? I mean, you, we just talked about something that's really hard. What keeps you going during these times? Because like, you know, it's like, and like anything, there are ebbs and flows where it becomes more and more difficult. And sometimes there are highs where you're like, oh God, this is the greatest thing ever. So what keeps you going? I'm motivated by, I think, just like, I, I have a chip on my shoulder for sure. Uh, like I grew up poor. I'm the child of um, Jewish refugees from the Soviet Union who grew up in communism. Um, I grew up being you know, told that like the reason we're in this country is because like, actually what's crazy to us is that the amount of effort that you put into working 
the better outcomes you can expect, uh, which is not the case in a communist country. Um, like how hard you worked didn't matter at all to your outcomes in life. Uh, it just matters like who you know and where you were born. And so like, I want to take full advantage of this world that like I am afforded the the privilege of living in. And so that just drives me like kind of the, I guess it's like, let's prove to the family and the people that like, yeah, like we can do this and we can make a huge impact. We can build a big company that benefits everybody's lives. Like there's this kind of, um, and, and when I see a problem that's like really worth solving, like the, the creative workflow problem, how it's like an arbitrary case making process. And it's like, this efficiency should be created. I should be the one to do it. Like, and, and the, the desire to see through that like impact and change on the people who are part of the team and and the industry as a whole, it's like, it, it feels like this kind of like, it's like a battle, right? It's like a long battle with yourself, with the industry. And I, I'm a fighter. <laughs> I like to fight. It, you know, it's, it's rewarding. Um, and, and that keeps me going, right? Like if you don't find like pleasure in adversity and you don't have kind of that grit, like don't do it. Like not, not for you. It's, it's really hard. And you got, you just need to have like perseverance, uh, which I think I find from that, like from my upbringing, honestly. So you answered the, uh, the question and maybe you think it's something different, but you sent, I essentially the next question is what's the quality that served you best in life um, or like your trait. And I think like the perseverance and, and uh, essentially wanting to solve problems, like you kind of dovetailed into that automatically, but I'm curious if you have something else that you think is, um, is a little different from that. No, I think, I think grit and perseverance is like, if you talk to my investors, that's how, that's probably the first word they'll, they'll say to characterize me maybe. And, uh, like one of the other things I'd say is so important is like having fun along the way. Like no one can beat you if you're having fun doing it because then it's like not work for you. Right. It also creates like an amazing workplace culture. If like, we are genuinely having fun building this business together and trying weird shit and doing out their stuff. And everyone has extreme ownership over their thing and not being micromanaged and told what to do. You know, we just hire smart people and trust them that like, they'll do that, like get out of their way essentially is like our, our, our whole theme here. You know, that creates like having fun at what you do. I certainly have fun at what I do. And that makes persevering easy because you're like, you do your best work when you're in a state of play. Uh, and so like, and, and it, it's hard for others to compete with that, I think. hundred percent. And then the last, the last one is what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I've ever received was stop worrying about things that are outside of your control. I think like as type a personalities, we tend to like assume ownership over everything, which causes a lot of like mental load. And, uh, a lot of things you just like, you can't control like no matter what you do, there are like some things that are outside of your control. If an investor passes on you, like, you know, you made your best pitch, focus on iterating what you can iterate on, learn from the process, improve your deck. Like those are things you control. Uh, you can't control like if someone hates you for no reason or like, you know, market fact variables that are outside of your control, like iOS 14, like stop stressing about it. It's happening. It's outside of your control focus on things you can control uh, and are within your scope of ownership. That has reduced my like general sense of anxiety and mental load by a lot. How long did it take you to learn that? I would say I only really internalized that like a few years ago. Uh, so I, I just recently turned 27 and I'd say that maybe like when I was like 25, I was like, yeah. 
Yeah, I was an asshole when I was 27. So congrats to you. <laughs> I hope I hope I'm not. <laughs> I don't know. No, you're not. I'm I, I, I'm I'm saying it's uh yeah it's uh it's incredible. I'm I'm uh, shocked every day and every time I have one of these chats at how um how level headed like the generation that has come after me. So like not that I'm that old, but I'm 34. So there's just a little bit of a difference and. It's funny because I feel find a lot of people are in their forties, fifties, sixties bemoan younger people are like this and that. I'm like, okay, well, young people at every generation have been schmucks, but I find that more and more you find just these incredible people, and it it is um it's easier. I find it easier and easier. I've been like so impressed with so many of the people in in our space, whether it's D to C or Martech like yourself. So yeah, this is a uh, amazing um thank you for sharing everything like people are really um lucky to be able to learn from you how should they get in contact with you i'll link out marpipe in the show notes but if they wanted to follow you should they do it on twitter or 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 linkedin better yeah hit me on twitter that's where like you know we can we can chat and hang out um it's at dan pantello on twitter and uh and if you want to check out what we're building and see if it's for you you know uh, go to just marpipe.com that's all yeah. And uh, thanks for the platform and, and the, the amazing conversation, Chase. This was, this was so much fun. Yeah, this was a blast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this was great. We'll do it again and we'll get that, uh, that thing going with, uh, with the rest of the team in our space. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ad Creative from Pencil. We hope you enjoyed our chat and learned a thing or two that can help you grow your business and think more creatively. If you have someone you think we should interview, just hit me up on Twitter. Also a small favor, if you could please share and review this, we want our guests' amazing insights to reach as much of the community as possible. And your ratings help. Till next time, add some creativity into your life. Thanks. <laughs>